0: I'll invite you to turn again to the book of Matthew. This time we'll be in chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at mainly at two verses today, verses 31 and 32, what Jesus has to say there about marriage and divorce. Uh, last week, Kevin St. John preached for us and took us through verses 27 to 30. And I want to begin reading in verse 27 once again, just to keep some of that context. So let's read Matthew 5, starting in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I think there's a tendency when we read verses like verses thirty one and thirty-two uh, to immediately be drawn into all the questions that are raised, the questions that we might have. And often this will then lead us very quickly into different debates, different discussions, uh, disagreements even about um, various viewpoints on this matter of divorce and remarriage and what the Bible says about it. We jump then to other texts and we want to have a systematic treatment of really what does the whole Bible say about this topic and how do these verses fit into it? Uh, We want the big picture questions and we often will jump there very quickly. What does this exception clause mean here? Why is it here and not in Luke or in Mark? And uh, what, what do we make of this? And how does this fit the big picture, et cetera? And of course, desiring that understanding is a good thing. That's, that's right. Uh, we, we want to understand what the whole of the Bible says about this. We want to understand, moreover, verses 31 and 32 in a way that is consistent with the rest of Scripture. However, what we don't want to do is jump too quickly into that and miss what's going on in Matthew chapter 5. We don't want to miss the function of these words in this particular context. That is, we want to see and understand what are these words doing here? Why, why is Jesus saying this here and now and in this way? Obviously, given the the Very little that is said here in these verses about marriage and divorce and remarriage. Obviously, Jesus' purpose was not to set out a whole entire uh, explanation of everything there is to say about marriage and divorce and remarriage, etc. And so what is he doing here? So in order to help us with that, I just want to briefly remind you, remind us of, of where we have been as we have been looking through this Sermon on the Mount We saw back at the beginning of chapter 5 in the Beatitudes these descriptions of those who've responded to Christ's preaching of the gospel of the kingdom, those who have entered into that kingdom by faith, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he lays out these characteristics of those who are in the kingdom. True disciples, those who are in, those who believe in him, who are born again, have been made new. They've been granted new desires. Uh, they are now characterized by a poverty of spirit. They acknowledge their sinfulness before God, that we are empty-handed sinners before the Almighty. Christ's disciples now, out of that new heart, possess a meekness. They hunger and thirst now for righteousness and so on. And then in verses 10 through 16, we saw that although... Christ's disciples, his people, will indeed be persecuted in this life. Nevertheless, we are those who remain here on this earth amongst unbelievers in the world, and and we have a a role to play here. We function as salt and light, Jesus says. And then Jesus clarifies in verses 17 through 20, that although he is coming and, and he is announcing New things. The kingdom of God is at kingdom of heaven is at hand. the King is here. There is something new that is afoot. New that is happening. Nevertheless, he clarifies that this doesn't mean that he is setting aside the Old Testament. This doesn't mean he's just declaring all that stuff void and he's just going to replace it with something that's altogether different and new. Rather, he says that he came to fulfill the Scriptures. He came to fulfill them. And we looked a few weeks ago now at how he does that in a number of ways. We won't rehearse all of that now. We discussed that one of the things that Jesus came to do was to make his people holy, to make his people righteous. This is one of the things the Old Testament prophets are looking ahead to. This day in which all of the people will will indeed know the Lord and will be cleansed and purified and, and made righteous. And so as this is part of what Christ has come to do, then he instructs us in this sermon on what true righteousness is. If If his people are those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, as we saw in the Beatitudes, well, what is that? What does that mean? What is righteousness? And Jesus is clear, the righteousness of his people is a righteousness that is categorically different altogether from that of the scribes and the Pharisees. He says that in verse 20. So Christ's people being clothed in his righteousness as our justification and possessing the spirit of God within us, we are also those who are being transformed into the image of Christ, which is to say we are those who are being made holy in our person. We're declared righteous because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. That's our position, our standing before God has changed. And now, as his people, we are being transformed into Christ's image, being made more holy, progressively being sanctified. And this righteousness that we are being formed into, that is being formed in us, is not something that is simply concerned with a few external changes. That's what the scribes and Pharisees were all about. But rather, the righteousness of which Christ is speaking is that which is concerned not just with externals, that matters, but also with things like our attitude in it, our motivations, the things that we desire and the things that we love. It is not as simple as just laying out a few rules for us that we can just check off, done, and then get on with it. This is one of the great beauties, I think, of the scriptures and what they teach of the Christian life. It also can be one of the frustrations sometimes, I think, of, I think, of the Christian life because it's, it would be easier if we just had a couple of little things, we just check it off there, I've done my chore for the day and now I'm just on to other things. But it's not so simple. And starting in verse 21, and then continuing through to the end of the chapter, in these verses, Jesus gives six illustrations of this true righteousness that he is speaking about. He doesn't cover every matter that we'll face, every matter of righteousness, but he zeroes in on six areas in which he contrasts true righteousness with A false righteousness like that of the scribes and Pharisees. And so in verses 21 to 26, he deals with the sixth commandment, matters of murder, and the the, uh, spirit of that law dealing with anger and hatred. And Harley preached that for us a couple of weeks ago. And then in verse 27, Jesus refers to the seventh commandment that is, the prohibition against adultery. And he points us there also toward the spirit of that law, that we would not simply avoid the act of adultery, but also despise and war against any desire for it, any thoughts of it. And as we come now to verses 31 and 32, we haven't left the context of that seventh commandment. What he says in these verses 31 and 32 is still related to the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And so as we come to these verses and we consider what is going on here, why are these words here, why is Jesus dealing with this now, how is this functioning in this Sermon on the Mount, in this context, we see that Jesus is illustrating true righteousness as it relates to marriage and this seventh commandment. He is pointing you and me to the sanctity of marriage. And he does this while exposing the error that was very prevalent, one of the errors that was very prevalent in his day, this false view of righteousness as it pertained to marriage and the seventh commandment. And so Jesus is instructing his people here. He's instructing kingdom citizens. So that you and I might know God's mind on these matters. We might understand what true righteousness is in this matter. That we might delight in it. That we might hunger and thirst after this. This righteousness that he is laying out for us. And so I want to just remind us before we dive into these verses. That as we hear God's law. As we hear His standard, that this is indeed good, that it is good. God's law is not our means by which we are trying to earn His approval and and justify ourselves before God. That is something the scribes and Pharisees did. We are those who are justified by God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. That is where we make our stand. But if that is your hope and your belief, then remember as we come now to see God's standard again that this is the thing that we aim for with our lives. To remember that this is good. Even as we fall short, even as we come under conviction for it, this is good. And it is good for us to align our desires and our loves and our actions with the law of God. our world is completely and utterly confused on this matter on many things but certainly on this matter and it is crucial that we hear and understand what God's Word has to say about this it is his world that he has created and he knows what is best he is the one who declares what is good And so as we go through these verses We're going to first look at the teaching of the day, the teaching of the day, the teaching in in Jesus' time. That's in verse 31, the teaching of the day. Secondly, we'll see the reality of the day. That's exposed in verse 32. And then we will have a few exhortations for us at the end. So first of all, the teaching of the day is verse 31. Let's read that again. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife... Let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now there's, as I mentioned, there's six different illustrations. There's six different statements made in chapter five here, where Jesus says, "You have heard that it was said, or some variation of that phrase. And we, were, we, had, we rightly had it explained to us last week that when Jesus says that, he is not setting out to correct the Old Testament law that was given through Moses. But rather, he is dealing with that law as it was interpreted and understood and taught in Jesus' day by the scribes and Pharisees. So again, he said, you know, he, he's here and, he, and, and obviously there's, there's new things happening, but he has not come to overturn the law and prophets or abolish them. In fact, he says whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And so he's setting out here to correct the misunderstanding and false instruction of his day and to teach the true instruction in the scriptures. He is showing us how the law of God is not in any way lessened in the new covenant, but is rather fully upheld. That Jesus is exposing some of the false teaching of his day I think is made very clear here and, and, and in a number of places we'll see as we continue through chapter 5 in later weeks. But, but I think it's clear here in verse 31 because in these, this verse, Jesus alludes to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. But it isn't a direct quote. In fact, there's I think some important differences that we'll see Just a moment. So if you want to flip to Deuteronomy 24, please do. We're going to read four verses there. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, we have a law concerning divorce, it's a case law dealing with a specific case. And so here's what Deuteronomy 24 1 to 4 says God, through the prophet Moses, Then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So so in those verses, we have a very particular scenario that is described and then regulated. And it uses, if you notice, the word if a bunch if the wife finds no favor because he has found some indecency in her, and if he writes her a certificate of divorce, and if she becomes another man's wife, and if he also divorces her, or if he dies, then, and then the command comes, then her former husband, first husband, is not to take her back. It is a text that acknowledges the reality of divorce and remarriage, and it puts some guidelines in place, but it doesn't say a whole lot. And I would suggest that the purpose of the text really, and I'm not the only one to do this, I agree with those who who make this case, that the purpose there in Deuteronomy 24 was to show that divorce really is no small matter. It's not something to be entered into lightly. You can't just send her away and then have her back. That kind of treatment of a woman is unacceptable. In fact, it says there, that it refers to it as a defilement of her. And I think it's probably also true that what is stated there about a certificate would provide some protection for the woman. So if she goes out, she has this certificate that proves that she's no longer married to this man, that if she was to remarry, that would not be a violation. So a man can't just send her out of his house and tell her to get lost and then, and then she goes and she has no proof of that. Someone else marries her and then that first man says, I never really actually meant it or divorced her or whatever. And you can see how that would have an even bigger mess. And so this is just regulating what is already a very messy situation. And it's assumed here. But nowhere in the, those words is there any command to divorce anyone. It is not suggesting that all of those actions along the way, if this happens, then that It's not saying all of those actions are pleasing to the Lord. Rather, it is as Jesus says in Matthew 19, which we read earlier in the service, what is happening there is there is a concession that regulates this somewhat because of resulting from the hardness of man's heart. It is acknowledging the fallenness of humanity and life in a fallen world, and regulating this somewhat. It is a concession flowing from man's sinfulness, life in a fallen world. But by Jesus' time, this text was taken by many as if it was teaching that the thing that really mattered in the issue of divorce is that you give her a certificate that's confirming that indeed a divorce is official. That's really what matters. If you want a divorce, that's fine. Just give her a certificate and then send her out. That is the righteous way to divorce your wife. That, that's how it was believed. That's how it was taught by many. It was believed. Whoever would divorce his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. You've done that. You're upstanding. You've behaved righteously. You're good to go. But this is, not as what, this is not what Deuteronomy 24.1 is teaching. That this view, this rather liberal view of marriage and divorce and remarriage, that it was common in Jesus' day is confirmed elsewhere. I think in Matthew 19, which we'll look at a little more in just a few minutes. But also, outside of Scripture we know that there were two rabbis that were influential on this subject in Jesus' time. Both of the men, these men died prior to the incarnation, just prior to Jesus' coming as man. Uh, But their influence remained. And one of those men was named Hillel. And he taught that Deuteronomy 24 meant that a man could divorce his wife for any sort of indecency that he happened to find in her including something as trivial as just burning a meal. So if he finds something indecent about her, whatever it is, as long as you write that certificate, no problem. You can divorce her. That was his position. The other position that was also out there was a little more restrictive. Something indecent had to be something a lot more drastic than that. But this was the view that seemed to be most prominent and that the scribes and Pharisees held. As long as you give that certificate, you've kept the law, you're righteous. And so again, I think it's clear that this is what they believed and taught in Matthew 19. There in verse 3, we read, Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Is it lawful to divorce for any reason? Another way, is Hillel, is this position of this rabbi correct? Can we divorce for any old reason? And Jesus' answer there, in essence, to paraphrase, is no. That's not valid. That's not lawful. That's not correct. And then they object to his answer. And I think this is where they reveal that they hold this opinion. They say to him in verse 7, Well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Why did he command it to be done? But again, in Deuteronomy 24, does Moses command a certificate of divorce and send her away? He doesn't. Divorce is never commanded in that text. But this is how it was taught and understood in Jesus' day as he walked the earth as a man. And this is what is in the background here. This is what he is addressing, a very liberal view of divorce. And more. even some of his disciples held this view as well. Again, still in Matthew 19, in verse 10, after Jesus has done some teaching on this and he's correcting this view, they say to him, his disciples, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Notice how incredibly Lo, their view of marriages. In his commentary, D.A. Carson says, the cynical response of the disciples virtually makes the appeal of marriage contingent on liberal divorce and remarriage rights. Marriage is good, but only if I have the right at any moment to just send her on her way and take somebody else. That's what that means. If, if, If what Jesus is saying is true, well, then it's better not to marry. That's what some of his own disciples are concluding here. How, how, how awful is their understanding of marriage? And yet, the scribes and Pharisees are considered the most righteous of men. This is what they believe. This is what they teach. Ours is not the first day to have a debased and low understanding and view of marriage. So this was the teaching of the day. But Jesus then goes on to give the antithesis in verse 32, and he reveals the reality of the day. He exposes what's really happening. So this is the second point of the outline, the reality of the day. Verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery underneath this accepted teaching of jesus day underneath this practice behind what is passing as righteousness is something that is very very serious and very wicked they're loosened liberal practice of divorce and remarriage, something they believe to be righteous because they have a certificate, is actually in reality causing widespread adultery, widespread violations of the seventh commandment. It's the very opposite of righteousness. This is a, a crushing and devastating criticism So, in addition to lustful intent and thoughts, another common form of adultery, one that was actually sanctioned by many in Israel, said to be biblical, it's commanded by Moses after all, is their practice of any cause, divorce, and subsequent remarriage. God's good design for marriage was destroyed all over the place, and it was tantamount to widespread adultery. So notice again, Jesus is not the one lessening the law in any way here. Rather, it's the scribes and Pharisees that are doing just that. And Jesus is bringing much-needed correction. So much for the Pharisees' pride in their own works. So much for their self-justification. In fact, back in... Luke chapter 16, verse 18. That's where we have in Luke, Luke's gospel, Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce. It's very succinct. That's in Luke chapter 16, verse 18. But if you back up to verse 14 and 15, Jesus is dealing there with the Pharisees. They are lovers of money. And he goes on to say, You are those who justify yourselves before men. And then he goes on again to speak of how the law is not passing away. And then he teaches this issue of their practice of divorce and remarriage is widespread adultery. He's confronting them with the law of God to reveal to them that their efforts to justify themselves fall woefully short. Again, the same thing is happening here. He exposes their so-called righteousness as in fact being wickedness. Now, in verse 32, we do have this exception clause, as it is often called, and it is a source of much debate. It's a source of contention. And it is my understanding that the most natural way and the correct way to read this is to see it as an exception to the rule that divorce and subsequent remarriage results in adultery. The exception is when a divorce is the result of adultery or sexual immorality already committed, in which case the divorce was permissible, though it was not commanded. Therefore, the divorce in such a case was lawful and the subsequent remarriage is not to be considered adultery. Now that exception clause here reads, it says, except on the ground or except in the matter of sexual immorality. The Greek word here, translated sexual immorality, is a bit of a broad term that can encompass a number of sexually immoral behaviors. Now, some might wonder then, since Jesus has just said lust is adultery of the heart, then that's obviously a form of sexual immorality. Some might wonder then if divorce on the basis of the slightest sexual sin is then permissible. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. And anyone who would want to try to make that case would seem to be closer to the Pharisees on this topic than to Jesus. If you're trying to find ways to get out, if you're trying to broaden it, if that's a goal, then I think you're missing Jesus' whole point here. Further, if that was the case, I'm not sure that there would ever be such a thing as an unjustifiable divorce if it can be done on the basis of the slightest sexual sin. I would suggest that what Jesus is referring to here is sexual activity with one who is not your spouse, that which would violate the one flesh union of man and wife by uniting instead with another. There's obviously many ways, many ways that could be done. It could be through prostitution. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 6. You're becoming one flesh now with with the prostitute. And how how wrong that is can be done through adultery with someone who is unmarried, adultery with someone who is married. It could be homosexuality, and so on. In such cases, a marriage may lawfully be terminated, though it is still not commanded. The reality is, there have been many marriages. There have been many marriages that have come back from that sin, where there has been forgiveness granted. Scriptures speak of another area of exception to the rule, namely in the case of abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. That's found in 1 Corinthians 7. And we're not going to go into that now, but I have dealt with that previously. Again, there, there are, you, you can see, I think, clearly how we could spend a lot of time just thinking through exceptions and scenarios and questions and what about if this happened or what about that, and we could spend a lot of time just, just thinking through that. When we were in Luke, we did take a a whole sermon to just talk about this, to take a a bit of a a broader view, a more systematic approach to this. Uh, And that that sermon is still available if you're interested in that. But I want to spend the rest of our time just trying to bring this home a little bit. And so a few exhortations for us. The first one. Understand once again that true righteousness is not merely concerned with the letter of the law. True righteousness is not merely concerned with the letter of the law. To a man, the scribes and Pharisees would affirm, Thou shalt not commit adultery. In fact, they would very likely affirm with the rich young ruler, All this I have kept since my youth. And certainly it was probably true that they had never technically committed the act of adultery. But this does not mean that they were righteous. What Jesus is exposing is that they have violated the spirit of the seventh commandment with their lustful thoughts verses 27 through 30, and with their low view of marriage and their gross teaching on divorce for virtually any reason. So many people make this mistake of not understanding and grasping that God looks not upon external things, but upon the heart of man. We just think if we do a few externals, we'll be fine. But you know, you understand the difference between just doing something and doing something with a glad heart, with joyfulness. We know this when we tell our children to do something and we know the difference between doing that gladly and doing that grudgingly. In the Old Testament, over and over again, the people think, we're fine, we have the temple, we go there, we offer these sacrifices, all is well between us and the Lord. And over and over again, God, through the prophets, is calling them to repent because they are just concerned with a few external, some of the easy things, denying the weightier matters of the law and of God's teaching, and their hearts are indeed far from the Lord. Which is why in places like Jeremiah 31, 31, They're looking ahead to this time when the hearts of all God's people, all those who are in covenant with God, will indeed be made new. When each member will have the Spirit of God within them. And Jesus is coming now, and he's describing to us what that is going to look like. We're not going to be those who simply, well, I've never technically committed adultery, and so therefore I'm righteous, and just be satisfied with that. We're not going to be those who say, well, look, I showed up to church. That's enough. That's good enough. We're going to want to be those who want to be there. So when we discover things like, I don't want to go to church today in my heart, or I don't feel like opening the word and reading it, that's going to bother us. We're going to do it, and we're going to deal with the Lord on the matter of the heart and be bothered by the fact that we don't desire this more. Because true righteousness will love it and will want it and will desire to pray, desire to be with the Lord's people. will love the righteous commands of God. And so when that's not the case, it's not enough for us that we're just like, hey, look, I did it. So let us be those who deal with the Lord honestly. On a heart level, on the level of our desires and loves wrestle things out on that level, pray on that level. Not just that I would get up and go through the motions in the morning and read or whatever it is, read the word and pray, but that I would long to be there. And that God would speak to me as I read. Second exhortation, take note of how important it is to seek to read your Bible carefully. The position of the scribes and Pharisees on divorce, they said, was biblical. After all, they're appealing to Moses. And yet notice, wow, it's just their interpretation. That's yeah, it's just whatever. It's just a matter of interpretation, right? How often do we get that? Well, it's just your opinion. That's just a matter of interpretation. Well, look, interpretation matters Pretty significantly here, I think you would agree. It's the difference between wi- why. That's a- all right. We'll get It's the difference between widespread adultery and true righteousness. third thing third exhortation delight yourself in god's good design for marriage jesus doesn't present a full explanation of what marriage is in this text in fact there's not a lot that he actually says he says more in other places like matthew 19 as we saw earlier but behind what is said here is undoubtedly god's good design for marriage And an implication of what he's saying here is that we ought to grasp and hold fast to the sanctity of marriage, not be looking for loopholes and outs. That may be one reason why it doesn't go into tremendous detail over and over about when it's okay and when it's not, because that's that's not primarily our concern. Our primary concern ought to be building a, a healthy marriage. Matthew 19, verse 4, again, when he was asked about whether divorce for any cause was acceptable, Jesus began his answer saying, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together Let not man separate. God's revealed will for marriage is that it is to be a beautiful and intimate relationship between a man and a woman, which God also defines, who are then united as one, united by God, what God has joined together. A relationship that reflects Christ and the church, as we saw from Ephesians 5 just a few weeks ago, when Matthew and Rainey were married. The Pharisees and scribes viewed adultery... Not so much as a violation, some issue with their faithfulness to their spouse, as if that's the problem, that I've been faithful, unfaithful to my spouse. The, 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 the main issue for them was you've actually was taking another man's wife. That's the issue. You violated that man's wife. But they didn't view it as a, really a, a significant problem in their unfaithfulness to their spouse. Again, this low view of marriage. Which is, I think, why Christ takes them back to that one flesh union that was there from the beginning, that is God's design and plan for marriage. Again, it is not enough to merely agree that literal adultery is bad. We're to put on a right and proper understanding of marriage and affirm the goodness of our Creator's design. The messaging from our world is the opposite of what God says about marriage. Many would have you believe that covenanting in marriage for the rest of your days till death parts you to one person of the opposite sex. They would have you believe that's restrictive. That's old. That's not necessary. That's unfulfilling. You need to keep moving on to others or at the very least, you need to have that option available to you. And as you get older, it's about you need somebody younger really to be satisfied. That's what's going to delight you. This kind of messaging is constant. And it's all lies. It's all lies. And as you fight those lies, seek to then put on and delight in God's good design for marriage. Again, this is His world, He knows what's best. Delight in what is good fourthly the final exhortation do not hold to a high view of marriage in a hypocritical way what I mean by this is let's not talk of a high view and affirm with our mouths God's good design and then go on to neglect our own marriages just letting them rot as we get older just being whatever we drift that's what you do when you get old. Let's not talk about the sanctity of marriage without sanctifying our own marriages, seeking to love our spouses with greater self-sacrifice and fervor as we grow older. Let's not rest in knowing the biblical roles of husbands and wives in marriage without then striving to fulfill those God-given roles daily and with gladness. And let's not blast the world for its egregious sexual sins that pervert marriage while harboring and enjoying more minor or secretive sexual sins that also fall short of the glory of God. Again, we don't want to be those. It's not right to just say, look, we are, the world's crazy about what they view about man and woman and, and sexuality. And it's, 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 Yeah, I'm not like that. I'm married to a woman, I have children, see? And then meanwhile, we're giving ourselves to pornography or whatever else it might be while blasting other people. I don't think that would be consistent with what Christ is teaching us here about true righteousness. The seventh commandment is not simply telling us to avoid the most awful violation of marriage. Just do the bare minimum, really. As long as you don't technically commit adultery, you're doing great. But the spirit of it is pointing us toward the goodness of God's design for man and woman in marriage, that we might celebrate it and love it and guard the purity of marriage. that we would vigorously work at conforming our own marriages to God's standards, dealing honestly with the Lord on the level of the heart. So let us be those who, yes, affirm with our mouths a high view of marriage and purity in agreement with the word of God and be those who work with great vigor and intensity again, to conform our own marriages to God's design. And for any of you who are are unmarried here, take this opportunity to prepare yourself for the day that you might, God might give to you a spouse by understanding and trusting God's good design and committing yourself to it, to pursuing purity even now and in God's good time committing yourself only to someone else who affirms likewise this high view of marriage. Whenever we speak of true righteousness, I think we very quickly, we ought to, I think very quickly understand that we continually fall short of it. And this is no less true when we speak of the seventh commandment is no less true when we think about marriage. And this is why the only hope of eternity is the Lord Jesus Christ, who has perfectly kept God's law. Not simply not simply in some external appearance, but he kept the very spirit of it. With not even one momentary faltering in thought or desire, let alone deed. And he did this on behalf of those he came to save. He did this that those who believe in him might be then clothed in his righteousness that he has earned. And he has gone to the cross to bear the penalty for your unrighteousness, to satisfy God's wrath against your sins rising again from the dead so I remind you rest in him trust in him and then see here again the beauty of God's good design for marriage and for purity of heart and seek after it with joyful gladness fight for this battle for this Not as one who's trying to earn God's favor, but as one who is under grace. This is the only way to keep from being depressed and downcast at our every failing. But again, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of what Christ reveals to us, what is taught to us throughout the New Testament scriptures, made clear to us God's law is never diminished. It maintains its perfection. The slightest sin is still sin. And we don't have to pretend otherwise because we're not trying to earn anything before God. We can confess that sin. We can have it brought into the light and be exposed and acknowledge it to God because we have one who has gone forward on our behalf and done what we cannot do and obeyed in our place. Paying our penalty, the penalty of our sin, and so we can we can lift our head, confess our sin honestly, the sins of the heart, with to God, and we can press forward in faith, seeking after that righteousness. Though we are not yet there, we are not yet made perfect. Paul says. So let us. Seek these things. But let us do, do that as those who are under grace. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. God, we need to hear your word. We need to understand your law. We need to know your ways. Thank you that we can come and, and, and we can read these words from our, the great prophet the Lord Jesus Christ, who has come as the word of God to explain you and to explain your ways to us. Father, we confess that we fall short as we are looking at this seventh commandment today and marriage. Certainly we confess to you we fall short. We are sinners. But this is true in many other areas of our lives as well. Father, if you were to reveal all of it to us and the true extent of how awful it all is, surely we would not be able to rise. But we thank you for your mercy and for your grace. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the righteousness that is ours by faith. That we do not have to... We are not called to earn your mercy, earn heaven. Father, we could never do it. You know it, and that is why Christ has come. So we praise you. We give you thanks. Father, as we continue to battle with our sin and as we live in amongst a a sinful world, we long for and look forward to the return of our Lord when all things will finally be made new and perfection will indeed be ours because of your faithfulness to your promise to save and to complete the work that you begin in your people. So we praise you, we thank you, in Jesus' name.